So I don't have a specific text this morning. We're going to be all over the Proverbs and the New Testament, and so you'll just have to brace yourself for whatever comes your way this morning. Uh, But why don't you stand up, we'll pray together, and we'll get started. We will have one more um, study next time I'm at the pulpit um, regarding this whole subject, and then we will be back in Galatians, I assure you. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you, Lord, for all of your goodness. We thank you, especially of late, and um, Lord, for sparing the life of Frank Stout and sparing his eye and his ear. Lord, we thank you for, for Juan, that he's doing well. But we pray that as they have much healing to do, uh, much, much pain to endure, that, Lord, you would just grant your mercy and that by your hand they would just recover quickly. So be with them, comfort them, comfort their families, provide for their needs. Lord, we also thank you for um, everybody that has recovered from COVID, and we just pray that you would see them to a full recovery. And some of them who are still just miserable, Lord, we pray that you would just be with them. And Father, we thank you for Roy, and um, I just pray that as he's in the hospital by himself, that you would grant him fellowship with your spirit. And, uh, and Lord, we know that uh, he's lived a good, long life, and we just would commit him to you in whatever decision uh, that you want to make in regard to his life. And, uh, but pray that you would just help him to trust you and to look to you during this time. And Lord, that you would be with his, his kids, his family, Lord. Encourage their hearts, we pray. And Lord, as we look into your word, um, Lord, we want to understand your word, and we want courage to live according to it. So be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated, please. So yeah, we're still in this uh, study about the ministry of restoration, and uh, we've been through a number of things so far. We'll review a little bit. As I was telling first service, when I was a part of a denomination, when I first got there, I was handed a a denominational handbook, and uh, that denominational handbook did all the research for us, at least I thought. Uh, Looking back now, I realized all of the shortcomings that it had, and especially in regard to the subject that we're talking about now, because the way that the handbook worked was that it treated every instance as uh, sort of a cookie cutter. It was all the same. And uh, so when we had problems, and this is, I think, what bugged me most, is Instead of the the board of elders looking to the scriptures to customize the protocol for a specific situation, we would open the handbook uh, because we were required by the denomination to do things according to the handbook that we were trusting that were done according to the scriptures, but they weren't. And uh, and now that I look back, I just think, man, as elders, uh, shouldn't they be qualified anyway to handle the scriptures? And... um, and, and I do. Here I have elders that uh, are diligent with the word, which I'm really thankful for. But um, yeah, we have to handle things first according to the scriptures and not according to some uh, extra biblical document. Uh, otherwise, we end up doing things contrary to the scriptures, and it's sinful for us to do that. So we don't want to sin in our ignorance. We want to be diligent to discover from the scriptures all that God says about um, anything. But uh, this particular study that we have now. And um, it's healthy for us to know the scriptures. So, so far in our study of this ministry of restoration, 
uh, we've been considering about how it is to restore unrepentant believers when they fail in regard to a central truth and morality. We've broken that up into three things. Uh, truth about God, uh, truth about the scriptures, and then uh, everything that has to do with biblical ethics and morality. And as Jesus instructed us in Matthew chapter 18, whenever we uh, witness a believer's failure in these areas, it requires, Jesus requires us to confront the person, to correct them, to call them to repentance, without which they cannot remain in fellowship, they cannot, uh, or if they've been excluded from the fellowship because of unrepentant sin, they cannot be restored until they've repented. There is no reconciliation. There's no fellowship, um, according to Christ, without repentance. They must be excluded until that happens. In our study, we've also identified four different kinds of sinners. And for each kind of sinner, uh, there is a different protocol for confronting and correcting. Uh, we've already talked about the sins of the laity from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. And then we went to an actual example in the scriptures uh, where there was a problem in 1 Corinthians 5, a problem in that church. And then we talked about the sins of the leadership uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verses 19 through 21. And then, of course, we went to the actual story of Paul confronting Peter for hypocrisy and for not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. If Peter can be confronted for getting out of line, any leader can. Amen? Any leader can. And something that we observed was that in the protocol for addressing the sins of the laity, Jesus grants them three strikes before they're excluded for unrepentance. But we observed with leadership that Paul prescribes one strike for them if there's unrepentance, because leadership must be held to a higher standard than the rest. Uh, if I recall correctly, uh, Moses just struck the rock, and he wasn't allowed in the land. Um, that's, that seems pretty hard for the, the meekest man that has ever lived. Wasn't allowed one time to get frustrated and angry with the people of God and then uh, kind of demonstrate to them as if God was angry with them. He was held to a higher standard. Um, I could go over many examples in Scripture, but leadership. Even James says, do not let many of you become teachers because they will get a stricter judgment. So we've talked about dealing with the laity, dealing with the leadership. Now it's time to address those who are divisive and those who are heretical. Now when we talk about divisive people and heretics, we're talking about troublemakers and false teachers. Troublemakers and false teachers. The two are different, but really the wake of their mischief can often have the exact same consequences for a church body which is why Paul deals with them in a very similar fashion, okay? By troublemakers, we're talking about malicious gossips. How many of you guys appreciate malicious gossips? Don't raise your hand, Josiah, okay? <laughs> Tattletales, uh, busybodies, uh, divisive people. Uh, the divisive person, as opposed to a false teacher, uh, fails in regard to conduct more than in what they teach. It's certainly a failure in things that they say, but it's more of an ethical issue than a theological or doctrinal one. Okay? This is a person who 
can't keep their mouths shut, but they're always sharing information or saying things that hurt people. They're hurtful people. They're always trying to damage someone's reputation. They're dividing friends. They're getting people in trouble, or they're undermining the church leadership. Uh, These people always end up destroying two things, at least two things, that God loves and commands for his church, and that's peace and unity. Peace and unity. Solomon uh, addresses this in the opposite way. He says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Proverbs 6, 18 through 19. So listen to that. A lying tongue, a heart that devises wicked plans, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. At least four of the seven of these abominable things describe what a divisive person does. These are people that lie to escape trouble or they lie to make trouble. We have to watch out for them. They devise evil plans against people for whatever their motive is, whether it's revenge or jealousy or whatever it might be. They sow false information to get others in trouble, and they destroy friendships and unity. Listen to how Solomon describes these people. A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends, Proverbs 16, 28. He says, a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eye. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord, Proverbs 6, 14 through 19. That's the Holy Spirit's perspective on divisive people. They are perverse. They are worthless. They are wicked. If that's God's evaluation of them, what should be ours? It seems to me that we should take sides with him against this kind of conduct in the church. Okay? In uh, Solomon's observation, he also provides uh, some counsel regarding these people. He says, cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease, Proverbs 22:10. And then he says, by implication, he says, where there is no wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no tail-bearer, strife ceases. Proverbs 26, 20. It's going to be my argument this morning that the best medicine for divisive people is to get rid of them, okay, if they will not repent. Yeah. Paul said that we should avoid everything that leads to strife and division. He told Timothy, he said, Timothy, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. But Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 23. So according to the, just, and this is just a sampling of the things that the scriptures talk about when it comes to division and strife, we get the idea that this is just, this is no small matter uh, to divide the body of Christ. Cannot put up with it. But there seems to be no end to divisive people or the things that they will divide over. They're very difficult people. Uh, I've been been a senior pastor now for about 
almost 15 years. Uh, I was an associate pastor for three and a half years, um, pushing 20 years in ministry. I got plenty of stories, okay? Um, so let me give you some examples. I'll try not to provide too many details. I don't want you to know who I'm talking about. Small town, bigger than what I'm used to, but some people cause division when they disagree with something the pastor has taught. Could you imagine people disagreeing with me? Jeez. But instead of going to the pastor to discuss the differences, what they do is they start talking to people in the church about how the pastor is teaching false doctrine. Uh, that's what mature people do, is they gossip. Okay? At least they think they're mature. And, uh, but you know, the scriptures would encourage you that if you believe, if, you're, if you think that the pastor is in error about something, you should be a good Christian, you should be mature, and you should go to your pastor and not cause division. If someone comes to you complaining about something the pastor has said that they think is an error, you should tell them to stop talking about it and go to the pastor. If they're afraid to go to the pastor, you should be a good brother or sister and go with them. Is that fair? Yeah, a good pastor will hear them out. Uh, if he won't, then that's when it's time to go to the elders. If they won't hear it out, uh, and it's an issue that is essential to the Christian faith, uh, then you should go to another church. You understand? If the church is teaching false doctrine that you're confident of, especially in essential matters, and the leadership will not answer to it, then leave. Leave. Go find a good church with good leadership that is faithfully teaching the scriptures. But what you should not do ever is you should never entertain any level of div divisiveness, division in yourself or in someone else. We shouldn't. Stop discord in its tracks. Do the right thing. What has happened here before uh, was there was someone in the church, a man, who after I had taught something, had baited people in a way to lead them into the conclusion that he had come to. And what was happening is as he would go to these people, they would call me. And the question that he was asking them was, hey, did you think the pastor was being humble in his sermon last week? That's an interesting way to state that. Um, now, concerning that particular sermon that I preached, it's, I mean, I may not have been completely humble about the subject, but that wasn't the person's beef, as I discovered later. He was upset because my conclusions regarding the subject did not agree with his. So instead of coming to me and talking about our differences, he went to a number of people in the church attacking my character, hoping to rally them against me. His purpose wasn't to elevate the truth, but to get back at me by dividing people against me. Uh, this, this is a perfect example of what division looks like. And what I've discovered about divisive people is that they always believe that they are more spiritual. They're always more, uh, they have better understanding of the scriptures. They always believe themselves to be more mature. But when it comes to abiding by biblical protocol to address issues in the church, they never obey them. So if someone thinks they're mature and they don't follow Jesus's instructions, they're not mature, they're presumptuous. Okay, there's something wrong with that person. Another common thing that happens is when two people in the church have some kind of run-in, a quarrel, a dispute, uh, typically over non-essential things. You know, they being difficult people, they can't share. They can't agree. They can't wait patiently. They, they can't something. It's always something. And in their dispute, 
course, hurtful things are said by both parties. And then both are offended. And both feel justified by what they said or what they did because the other person behaved so badly. And then one or both, in their self-righteousness, begin to confess the sins of the other person to a host of other people, conveniently leaving out their contribution to the problem. You've been in that before, right? And before long, people are upset, a lot of people, and there's division throughout the whole church. And when you talk to the individuals, they cannot put their finger on how it started. It's just come to this, and here we are, and everybody's mad at one another. Well, I like to do a little investigating before I bring someone to the gallows, okay? Because in my experience, people generally tell the truth, just not all of the truth, okay? People usually provide just enough evidence to secure their own pardon and just enough dirt to hang their opponent. But when you begin to investigate, you know, really, it's, it's hard not to hang both of them. There's an important proverb that speaks into this scenario. Solomon said this, he said, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Proverbs 18, 17. Listen to that. The first one to plead his cause seems right. Seems right. How many of you guys have been duped by the first tattletale? Just confess it. It's okay. It happens to us all. All right? They seem right until their neighbor, their sibling, comes and examines them. <laughs> People's stories can be pretty convincing until someone else comes forward and says, yeah, I was there. And I don't quite remember it that way. And something that I've learned um, is that oftentimes uh, the offending criminal is the first to call 911. It's a really interesting statistic that's out there. But the, the criminal oftentimes is the one who calls 911 because they know they can get the upper hand if they're the first to go to the police. And I'll bet you they're not aware of that proverb. They know it by experience, okay? A number of people do this with me. They're the guilty party, or they've contributed greatly to the problem, but they think they can get some leverage in the dispute by being the first to come to me. It's a tactic of toddlers. You know, you confess the sins of your siblings, you conceal your own sin, and you'd be the first to go to mommy. Have you ever disciplined a child based upon the word of another child and then later regretted it? I never have, but my wife certainly has. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so childish, but we repeat the sins of childhood all the time. When you get two guilty people together, it's amazing what you can learn, right? The whole picture begins to come in view, and guilt just begins to come out. And sometimes, ideally, people recognize their sin. They confess to one another. They repent. There's reconciliation. But that's not always the case. And when one or both persons will not repent... After they've been called to repentance, they've been warned about division, and then they go and they repeat the quarrel or cause more division. Paul says they must be excluded from the fellowship. Okay? Divisive people, according to Scripture, they only get two strikes. Protocol changes. Paul told Titus, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Titus 3.10. As we said, the laity for general sins get three strikes, the leadership get one, but divisive people get two, two. And I think it's because of the potential damage 
that divisive people have, similar to a heretic. Now, in the context of this instruction to Titus, Paul is commanding Titus to avoid or to shun foolish arguments that are unprofitable and they're useless. So let me give you another example, a real example. I won't use the pastor's name. Um, I don't think he's in the community anymore. But years ago, we were at a homeschool baseball thing, and he tried to lure me into an argument. And I could kind of feel it coming, but he was trying to lure me into an argument about why pastors should wear a suit on Sunday morning. (laughs) He knew that I didn't. He already knew. But he asked so that he could instigate an argument. It's, It's very mature and spiritual of him. I don't quite understand the mentality behind people that do that. But I have come to a place where if someone has a text of Scripture to argue their point, I will debate the interpretation. And I think that that's actually healthy, healthy debate, discussion about the text of Scripture. But if it's a matter of personal preference, their tradition, uh, their culture opinion, I don't want to play anymore. When I was younger in the ministry and I had everything figured out and I was a hothead and everything else, I would love to get in an argument with people, especially uh, atheists and unbelievers and people in various cults. I lived for the encounter to argue. Uh, But anymore, I think as Paul says, you know, when I was a child, I did things as a child, but when when I became a man, I left those things behind. And the more as time goes by, I have things of real value to wrestle with, things from the scriptures that I don't completely understand, that I really want to know. I don't have time for nonsense. So, you know, if you want to wear a suit, I would encourage you to wear one. Uh, Just like if you want to eat black licorice, eat it. Uh, Just keep your distance from me because this stuff smells nasty. Okay. So as nice as I can say this, I like suits about as much as I like black licorice, okay? Uh, I don't like the way they look. That may be very offensive to you. That's too bad. It's my preference. I don't like the way they look. I don't like the way they feel. I don't like the way they make me feel. I just don't. And until I have some biblical reasons for wearing one, or I'm convinced by the scriptures that a suit is the most godly or most God-honoring piece of clothing, I'm not going to spend my money on more clothes, okay? But I have to say that if you're a bride who's about to be married, I will wear one to honor your request because it's your day, and I do want to bless you. If you want to wear one, if you want me to wear one, rather, at your funeral, I will honor your request, even though I know you won't be there, okay? (laughs) I will. And I actually do want to wear one when people request it. I do, okay? But until Jesus prescribes a Sunday morning dress code, I'm going to wear what I believe honors him, not what someone else thinks honors him. You understand the subjective nature of this discussion. That's an example, okay, of arguing over trivial things, things that cannot be disproven. If a person wants to argue about non-essential things without relenting, he is a divisive person, okay, and he must go after the second warning. People's preferences, their opinion, their particular view, which cannot be disproven by Scripture, proven biblically, those things should never be given equal or greater status than the Scriptures. It astounds me that people get into these debates after Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their traditions. 
okay? elevating them, replacing the scriptures even. You know, we should never make rules that God did not make. Because when you do that, you start looking down on people for what God does not look down on them for, or you start elevating people for what God never elevates them for. And that's, what, that's where legalism comes from, and man-made garbage. But I do have to say, because of Romans chapter 14 and 15, you know, you can have your own opinion about non-essential things. I certainly do, as I told first service, as Gay Banzolini knows very well. Okay? I have my position. I have strong opinions about non-essential things. But hey, if you don't have that strong opinion, you can be wrong. I'm not going to impose that on you. You understand what I'm saying? It's not essential. It's a conviction that I have that I didn't really get from the scriptures. I just think that it's more reasonable. It's more intelligent. It, it's, it's more wise or whatever. I have my reasons. That's okay. What's that? I love to be wrong. You can enjoy your preferences like black licorice if you can stomach it. But when you start imposing those things on other people, if you start causing division because of it, and you won't stop. We will see you to the door, okay? That's just the way it is. God hates division. So when it comes to non-essentials, we should be gracious and we should show grace. Um, I gave this quote to first service. It's from Rupert Meldenius. He was a Lutheran theologian from the 17th century. You've probably heard it. He said, in the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love. In essentials, unity. We must have unity around the essentials. If we don't, there's no fellowship. Okay? That's why we don't uh, fellowship with, with the LDS or the Jehovah's Witness or the Oneness Pentecostals. They, they're, they're heretics. We're going to get into them in just a minute. But without unity in truth, there's just no fellowship. In non-essentials, there's liberty. In all things, there's love. But it remains that you know when it comes to uh, what is absolutely essential in terms of theology, in terms of biblical doctrine, we cannot sacrifice the truth on the altar of unity. We can't do that, okay? There's no unity in heresy, and that brings us to these lovely people, false teachers, heretics. Now, a heretic, a false teacher, is someone who is failing in some specific thing regarding theology or doctrine, now, typically, a heretic is not a, a champion of conduct either, but it's their teaching that concerns us, okay? Their views about God, their views about Scripture. If they don't get God right, okay, that immediately uh, is what cults are made of. They get God wrong. They, they mess up his nature. They mess up his character, his attributes, and so forth. The other thing they do is they screw up doctrine, Okay, they take the, the most fundamental things of the faith from the scriptures and they twist it. And then we no longer have the gospel. We no longer have uh, a solid doctrine of justification, of salvation. They're failing in theology <coughs> or doctrine. And the problem with these people is they're not satisfied fellowshipping with their own people, like-minded people. They can't help themselves. So what they do is they, they sneak into a church that is currently enjoying unity and fellowship around the Word of God. And what they want to do is they want to infiltrate and they want to destroy that. They want to overthrow people's faith. These are dangerous people. And as you know, um, or maybe you don't know, and that's a, a nice, pleasant place to be, but 
you know, there are countless numbers of heretics on YouTube, on TBN. And all of that stuff is very, very concerning to me because we have so many young people that at a click of a button, they have access to all of them, any of them. Uh, and it's troubling. But more concerning to me, of course, is my own fellowship and when there are false teachers in our midst. And, and we've had them before. Um, I don't know of any currently, but I will find you. <laughs> and so like wolves in sheep clothing, they want to mingle among us. And it's amazing how far they can get into the, the fellowship before they're discovered. And they're discovered because eventually they bite, they strike. Listen to <clears throat> some of the New Testament warnings about these people. Peter warned the churches. He said, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. That's, that's bad theology and doctrine. And they'll bring on themselves swift destruction. And here's the problem. Many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. You guys, it's as bad as it sounds. Okay? Embracing false doctrine determines someone's eternity. And that's why Jesus and the apostles were so hard on false teachers. Paul added to this. He says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, Ephesians 4, 14. Now we have to be clear, we're not talking, Paul's not talking, Peter's not talking about new believers who are trying to figure things out. They're in the process of discipleship. They're learning the scriptures. They're learning about the faith. They sometimes have quirky things that they say, and, 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 and they're not completely informed about some of the most fundamental things. That's a process they're in. They're not nefarious people. Okay, what I like about new believers is that they have zeal without knowledge. Okay, we want them to keep the zeal, but we want to give them the knowledge. Amen? That's not a heretic, though. Okay, it's not new believers that we're talking about. These are people with an agenda. These are people that want to divide and conquer. It's trickery, Paul says. It's cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. And sadly, these people emerge from our own ranks. Paul both warned and instructed Timothy regarding these things. He said, I charge you therefore before God and our Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, that is, to lies. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. And then in a similar way, Paul, when he was on his way back to Jerusalem, he stopped off in Ephesus to give some final instructions to them, knowing he would never see them again. He said, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, 
Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And here it is. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Acts 20, 29 through 31. Paul is saying, I know. He said the same thing to Timothy by the Holy Spirit. In the latter days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves. There'll be all these things. Problems are coming. Paul says, I can't stop it. Jesus said it can't be stopped. He says offenses will come, but woe to him who causes them. But Paul says, I did do my due diligence when I was with you. I did not fail for three years to give to you the whole counsel of God. But he says, nonetheless, people from the outside will come in and they will try to destroy the flock. But then even men within your ranks will rise up saying perverse things and they will try to destroy. Paul says that it brought him tears to think about that. Those that he'd led to the faith, discipled in the faith, and many of them, their faith would be overthrown by these people. Nothing has changed today. You know, when you look at church history, um, I can think about just the heretics, the heresy, and the progression of them over the first 400 years. There was a lot of heretics, but you know what? There are so many more heretics today. It's crazy. And you know, the experience of the first century was you probably knew of a local heretic maybe one in an adjacent city. But today, through the internet, you can access every heretic everywhere on the planet if he's he's doing anything digital online or anything. Isn't that amazing? That Satan has so effectively been able to broadcast error. If we're not in the last days, I'm just not certain how the last days will look. (laughs) And so more than ever, just as Paul says, you know, this this sound biblical exposition, exposition, It's absolutely necessary for the church. If those discipled by Paul would fall to heresy, it's going to happen today by anybody else's teaching. But we need the scriptures in our churches. Amen? I heard somebody the other day say, we don't need more pastors. We just need more good Bible teachers because there's enough bad ones out there. We need more biblical exposition and we need more obedience to the text of scripture regarding the exclusion of false teachers. The instruction that God gives to his church He says, the first thing, I want you to turn yourself away from false teachers. And when they're in your midst, I want you to turn them away from the fellowship. So you individually, he says, turn away from them, reject them. And then if they're in your church, get them out. Okay. And the instruction is the same as it was with divisive people. They're to be excluded after the second warning. They cannot be allowed to speak. Now, I will meet with somebody with heretical beliefs in person, because I do believe the goal is to try to win them, okay, uh, through the scriptures, lead them away from error. I'm commanded to do that as a pastor, okay, but if they will not hear, if they will not repent, okay, they can't just fellowship here. They can't do that. Paul says, he says that a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.24. So if they won't repent, I can't do anything for them. Okay? I'll meet with them, but I will not let them be here among us. I hope that that would bother you guys if I did. 
Because it really would be like letting a pedophile babysit your children. They're dangerous people, okay? They're dangerous. Peter says that what they teach is destructive. It has eternal consequences for those who embrace their teaching. And Paul commanded us, commanded us to reject such a person. Paul also told the Romans, listen to this language. He says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 18. Paul begins by saying, I want you to note them, those that are the heretics. That is, I want you to keep your eye on them. I want you to point them out so that everybody knows exactly who it is and who they should avoid. That's what I want you to do. And then I want you to avoid them. They're not to be in fellowship with you. You're not to fellowship with them. These people are skillfully deceptive, which makes them dangerous. Now, I'm always troubled when a, a pastor, uh, a Christian leader, names a heretic by name and calls out their heresy, and then people in the body of Christ get up in arms about it. Paul told us to do that. So if I name names from the pulpit, as I told first service, I don't have time because the list is too long. But if I name a name of a heretic, please don't get upset with me. I'm just, I'm just doing as I'm told, okay? My job is to note them to you guys and to tell you what their problem is and to tell you to avoid them. And I will, okay? I will do that. Paul told the Thessalonians, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. 2 Thessalonians 3.14. Paul commanded Timothy, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. He should use more periods, Paul, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. So bad company doesn't just corrupt good habits. It corrupts good theology, doctrine, practice, and the rest. It twists the truth and leads people astray. So divisive people, false teachers. If they do not repent after the second warning, the elders of Calvary Chapel will obey the scriptures and we will help you to the curb. Okay, that's what we'll do. They cannot attend our services. They cannot be here. It's just bad. But let me just share with you real quick how thankful I am. This church is so good at policing itself. It's such a relief to me. I don't have to get involved with a lot of heretics because you guys have been so gracious to help them along the way. Because you guys don't tolerate it, they don't stick around. I haven't got involved with a heretic for, I think, a few years now. And there's been times where it was like, every couple months. But man, it just seems that the health of the church is just, it seems to be self-purging. So thank you. And um, it's just so sweet. So let's keep ourselves in the word. Let's abide by the scriptures. Let's be gracious, but let's be firm about who we are, what we believe, who we belong to. And um, it's sweet. I certainly see things on the horizon coming. Um, I'm concerned about our young people and the things that will affect them. 
the way that our culture is going. But what we need to do is, I've said many times, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that in the last days, perilous times will come. And he just, just gets this list of just terrible things that are very depressing. But then there's that unfortunate chapter break to chapter 4. So Paul says all this stuff is going to happen. It's coming, chapter 3. In chapter 4, he says, Timothy, this is what I want you to do. I want you to preach the word. You guys, it's always the word that we come back to. It's the authority. It's the plumb. It's God's direction. Let's keep our faces in it. Let's live by it. And things will go so much better. We're going to have trouble, but let's just handle trouble well. Amen. When we come back to our study, uh, we're going to look at two more things and we'll be done. And then we'll go back to the exposition of Galatians. What I want to talk about next is what Jesus talks about, and that is our responsibility to go to our brother or sister when we've sinned against them. We've talked about when we witness a brother or sister in sin, we have a responsibility to go to them and call them out. But if we're the sinner, we have a responsibility to go to those that we hurt, to confess, to repent, and seek reconciliation. And then finally, I want to talk about the necessity of corporate exclusion. Jesus and the apostles gave us clear instruction about when we exclude someone from the fellowship because of unrepentant sin regarding theology, doctrine, or morality, we must all exclude them if we're going to get the results that Jesus wants. Okay? So we'll talk about that then. Uh, that perhaps is probably the hardest discussion in all of this, but um, I've come to learn that Jesus knows what he's talking about. Okay? So we'll look at that. And then we'll be back in Galatians. So why don't you stand up? We'll pray. And I'll cut you loose to this stellar day that we're having out there. So we got a piano recital and a birthday party, and which probably will involve a Nerf war. So that'll be pretty epic. So let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, my, my prayer always is that when your word is communicated, that it, it doesn't come to nothing. Lord, I do trust your word that it will accomplish your will. Lord, I pray that um, we would have ears to hear. And as we hear your word, we understand it, Lord, that you would give us courage and wisdom to live according to it. We do not know better. We do not. You know best. And so, Lord, help us to submit our hearts and our minds to the instruction of your word and then to follow through. And, Lord, I pray that as you've taught us from your word, you've equipped us. Lord, we don't want problems at Calvary Chapel or at any legitimate body of Christ. We pray that you would preserve us, that you'd watch after us. You'd give us eyes to see when things are out of line, and that by grace, Lord, by wisdom, you'd help us to bring things back into conformity to your word. Lord, help us to be a healthy church, Lord, that would glorify you and be a blessing to people. So, Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Lord bless you. Love you guys.